We are back at the FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Summit. I am John Kingston, the editor-at-large. And to talk about this next guest, you know, when, when you're a reader of nonfiction, people will ask you sometimes, hey, what are you reading right now? So a few years ago, well, maybe more than a few, uh, I would answer, I'm reading a book called The Box. And well, what is it about? Well, it's about container cargoes, uh, cargo containers. And, you know, you get this look like, oh, that sounds really, really interesting. And the fact is, it wasn't just interesting. It was fascinating. It was one of the finest nonfiction books that I've ever read. And I... When I get, got the opportunity to interview the author, Mark Levinson, for this summit, I said yes immediately because I, Mark had actually sat in on a, uh, an interview at a, at a Freightways event a few years earlier. I missed that for some reason. I think I was off doing something else. So I'm very glad to not just hear Mark, but also to interview him. So, Mark, uh, welcome to the Freightways Global Supply Chain Summit. Well, thank you, John. I'm delighted to be with you. So Mark is a journalist who has seen the world of international trade through being through uh, being with the Journal of Commerce. He worked for Time and Newsweek, uh, the Bureau of National Affairs, which is now part of Bloomberg, and he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So the temptation is to start talking about the box and everything it stood for, but I, I do want to look a little bit forward. And the fact is that your latest book is a little play on words off your uh, most famous work, and the latest work is called Outside the Box. And it's an argument that a lot of the things that are going on in the world right now that appear to be very anti-globalization, the rise of the Trump administration, Brexit, that sort of thing, are just another phase in the long arc of globalization. So can you talk about your basic theory uh, that you expound on in Outside the Box? Sure. Globalization has been going on now since probably the 1830s. Uh, it's gone through uh, several different phases. And what we think of globalization today is really just the most recent one. This is the era of these long, complicated global supply chains. This really began in the late 1980s. Before then, globalization had involved heavily trade in commodities, particularly in the 19th century. And it had involved the wealthy countries in the north, manufacturing things and shipping them to the poor countries in the South that were commodity suppliers. This globalization that began in the late 1980s because of cheap shipping and cheap telecommunications and better computing reversed all that. Now the, the uh, poorer countries, the low-wage countries, became the manufacturing hubs, supplying the uh, wealthy countries. And this really transformed the politics of globalization, too. If you have a memory, uh, back 30 years ago, it was the poor countries that felt uh, exploited by trade, and it was the rich countries that were all for more trade. Uh, that's kind of been stood on its head since then. I think what we're seeing is now that these, these long supply chains have had their day, and so we're seeing some reaction to that and uh, moving into an era in which trade is going more slowly. So how is what's going on recently? You know, I, you, I mentioned two things, and of course, I think it's in your work, uh, would be Brexit and the rise of the Trump administration and its skepticism on trade. How is it another step rather than just a break? Well, international trade grew probably twice as fast as the world economy from the late 1980s to about 2008. And foreign investment, of course, boomed. Since then, trade and foreign investment have actually been growing more slowly than the world economy. And that predated Brexit. That predated Trump. So these are, are longer range trends. 
What's happening, I think, is a couple things. One is that a lot of firms found that they really had misassessed or underestimated the risks of these long value chains. Uh, they really looked at production costs and they said, hey, it's cheaper to make things in China without really paying attention to whether they get their goods delivered on time and, and whether there would be losses from that. Uh, the other thing that's happening is that a lot of manufacturing work is really being transformed into services type of work, where the process of physically assembling things or physically stamping things or physically molding things doesn't matter so much. And as trade comes to encompass more and more services, then uh, that's really what's flowing internationally, much more than the, the physical goods. So I think we're seeing this shift to where uh, it's services and ideas that are becoming the core of globalization. Trade is still there, trade in goods, but it's just going to be growing much more slowly in the years ahead. I remember one analyst, I don't even remember who it was, who had a theory that one of the big breaks in the whole idea of being fine with a supply chain that extends back to a manufacturer in China, uh, one of the first times it took a real hit was the tsunami uh, that hit Japan. Uh, of course, Japan's not China, but uh, still a lot of things came from Japan, and suddenly those were all thrown into turmoil. Uh, I don't know what you feel about that, but then you look at COVID and, of course, all the disruption that that's created. If you look at these various things, are, are they all contributing to the idea of reshoring or maybe pulling in your supply chains a little bit more? They're contributing to the idea of making supply chains more resilient. Uh, I don't use the word reshoring because I don't think that's exactly what's going on. Reshoring implies that someone is taking a factory that is in China or Vietnam or wherever and moving it somewhere close to the United States. I don't think we're seeing much of that. What we are seeing is that companies are deciding that this idea that you make everything in one giant factory to get economies of scale is a terrible idea. So they're establishing redundant production. They've still got a factory in Asia, but they're also going to have a factory somewhere in North America and somewhere in Europe. And these factories can step in for one another in case there is some kind of interruption in transport, some kind of interruption in manufacturing. They're resilient and that makes their whole supply chain more secure. Is COVID going to accelerate that trend? I think COVID is absolutely accelerating that trend. All right. And how just simply more uh, more facilities in the U.S. or somewhere in, in North America? Uh, it's yes. And, and is increasing the attention that uh, companies are giving to resilience throughout the supply chain. A, a lot of people looked at COVID and said, all this stuff is in in China. So we need to make this in the United States, but there wasn't much of a realization about how complicated a supply chain can be. It's, it's not a matter of simply stamping out a pill or putting together a vaccine in, in a factory that's located in the United States. There are a lot of parts to a value chain, from the invention, from the intellectual property, to all of the uh, ingredients to the delivery channels, whether it's uh, a little vial of a vaccine or, or uh, some kind of uh, complicated delivery system for an infusion of some sort, all of those things have to be made redundant so you can draw on them from one place or another place. It's important for people to realize that simply manufacturing in the United States 
doesn't do this. Uh, you'll recall that we had just a couple of years ago some severe hurricanes in Puerto Rico. They disrupted pharmaceutical manufacturing in Puerto Rico. And if that was where you got your stuff, you had a delivery problem. So again, it's important to have redundancy in value chains, not just, um, it's not just the location, it's the redundancy that matters as well. Yeah, I have to admit that one of the, the little bits of trade data that I was not aware of before the, uh, the pandemic was that the U.S. gets something like 95% plus of its antibiotics from China. I, I never knew that. And I, you know, I think that that can clearly be identified as a vulnerability without necessarily feeling that your free trade bona fides are being uh, compromised somehow. Sure. Uh, it's also been the case that a lot of the shift in manufacturing that drove this version of globalization that developed in the late 1980s was subsidized, very heavily subsidized. The ships were subsidized. People don't really realize how much uh, shipbuilding and ship ownership have been subsidized by governments around the country. What does that mean? Well, it means freight transportation is artificially cheap because these uh, subsidies are passed along to the shippers. And of course, uh, companies have gotten megabucks to open factories here or there, and that affects the flow of trade. So the notion that somehow all of this globalization reflects simply comparative advantage just really isn't the story. Let's go back to the whole globalization question. And I do want to, you, you kind of touched on this, but I really want to hone in on this. There was a world post-World War II consensus about free trade. Is it breaking down? Uh, I think the what's breaking down is the consensus that free trade is some kind of perfect solution. Okay, The world is kind of messy. And I think what we're seeing is a move to a notion that, yes, international trade is a good thing. It benefits economies. It makes the world more efficient. But there can be too much of a good thing. And if trade is actually driven by mispricing because of subsidies and by uh, misjudgment about risk, then maybe there's a little too much trade. And so there has to be a bit more balance here. And I, th I think that's where the uh, consensus is headed. We try not to get too political here, but you know, I think the biggest break in trade is that the Republican Party had traditionally been probably the more pro-free trade party. Uh, no matter where it sort of comes down on the issue, eventually it's not going to be what it was before. Um, and um, do you see that as a significant shift in, in U.S. trade policy, that you've got one of the two main political parties that has clearly moved on its views of trade? Well, I think both of the political parties have actually moved on their views of trade over the years. Uh, the question, from my point of view, is how you keep trade flowing. You know, I don't think we want to go back to the protectionist days when tariffs were 10 or 20 or 30 percent, when trade was very expensive and there wasn't so much of it. I think trade has brought us enormous benefits. But I think we do need to beware that uh, globalization really did, uh, in the 2000s, really go to excess and moved in directions that were not beneficial to the world economy and caused a lot of damage in individual countries and individual communities. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actual movement of ships and containers. Um, one, I was looking over some of your recent writings, and one of the things I saw was a piece, I think, from late last year in the Wall Street Journal about the mega carriers, these gigantic ships 
uh, carrying far more containers than the earlier versions had, and that you kind of felt this was a flop. I couldn't help but read this and think about, I don't know how I missed it the first time, to be honest, but um, I couldn't help but think about the what, A300, the gigantic Airbus plane that is now looking like pretty much of a bust. And I think you were suggesting in this that the giant container ships are also a bust because they take a long time to load and yeah, there's some cost efficiency in moving them. But by that, that sheer time needed to load ships, wait till the ship is loaded to go, wait to offload them, you're disrupting highly efficient supply chains that are on a schedule. So is there much of a future for these big ships? Not for the super big ships. Uh, just to take you back into history, when the first modern container ship set sail back in 1956, it carried uh, the equivalent of 68 containers. Okay, So by modern thinking, this was a very, very small vessel. And today, obviously, the biggest can carry uh, as much freight as 12,000 trucks, Okay, 24,000 20-foot equivalent units for, for your participants who all know, I'm sure, what TEUs are. And the ship lines kept building bigger and bigger because they said there are economies of scale here. And you can see why that makes sense, right? If you double the size of a ship, you don't need two engines and you don't need twice as big a crew and, and all of those things. So it does drive the unit cost down. But at a certain point, uh, you've exhausted the economies of scale. You don't save costs anymore and you introduce complications. And that's really what happened with the mega ships. So I don't think we're going back to the days when you had ships that carried 1,000 or 2,000 containers around. But I also think this idea of uh, 24,000 TEU ships uh, hasn't done very well. I think we're seeing the, the more thoughtful shipping lines look more in terms of 15 to 17,000 TEUs as the kind of size that is fairly efficient to operate, gives them a lot of flexibility. You know, these giant ships, the 24,000 TEU ships, they can't go a lot of places. Uh, they're too big for the routes in many cases. They're they require too much water for the harbors. Uh, they require cranes bigger than many ports have. And so I think uh, they're going to move toward ships in a somewhat smaller range, which will probably be more uh, efficient for the entire freight transport system. Yeah, but you know, a lot of a lot of ports have done a lot of work to get ready for them. I can think as a as a New Yorker, I think about the reconstruction of the Bayonne Bridge, and they made that thing high enough so that those big ships could get could get through, it could get under them. And uh, you wonder if that was necessary. I'm sure there were costs involved in doing that. And were there, you know, was that a cost that wasn't ultimately needed? I guess time will tell on that. Let's talk about the box. Let's talk about the book that I think kind of made your fame. Uh, did you think it was going to be as big as it was when you when you published it? It was quite a surprise. Okay. And when did you know that it was a that it was a real hit? Uh, I knew that it was a real hit. Uh, this was published by Princeton University Press, and I knew that it was a real hit when I heard that the uh, editorial assistants out of the press loved it. Okay? They see a lot of books come through, obviously, and they thought this was great, which really surprised the editors. And then one of the editorial assistants volunteered to design the cover for the book. And that told me that people who you know, don't make their livings in economics or in transportation um, just found that this was an interesting read. And, and that was really the first time I knew that uh, the box might find an audience. 
Oh, that's good. I mean, it got great reviews, and that's why I turned to it. I'm going to throw out three names here, and I want you to tell me who do you think has had the biggest impact on international logistics. The first name, of course, will be Malcolm McLean, who was the inventor of the container cargo uh, and who the, is the main focus of the box. The second would be Fred Smith, who founded FedEx, I think remains its chairman today, and um, created that, that whole sort of international movement of smaller parcels, or not just smaller, some bigger goods. And the third, of course, would be Jeff Bezos, who needs no introduction. Who had the biggest impact? Uh, that's really hard to say. I would point out that I argue that Malcolm McLean wasn't exactly the inventor of the box, because uh, the idea of containerization had been around for a long time before Malcolm McLean. Malcolm McLean was the guy who sort of took this concept that had been around and turned it into something that was financially viable that you could actually use to improve service to your customers and build a company from. And both Fred Smith and, and Jeff Bezos have really built on these ideas of taking advantage of the technology that was available to them to change the way that logistics occurred. Uh, one of the, the lessons uh, I draw from the box is that a lot of the improvements that have come in logistics, as in many other areas, are incremental. Okay, Malcolm McLean didn't start out trying to change the world with a container ship. He started out trying to beat traffic jams on the east coast of the United States by sailing a few containers down the coast. And from that small concept, things grew and grew and grew. And Fred Smith and, and Jeff Bezos both built on this, again, making incremental improvements. And as they saw that something worked, they tried something else and they tried something else. That's really how innovation goes. And I think all three of these gentlemen are terrific innovators. Should I, is there a fourth name I should have put on the list? I think we've seen a lot of innovation in, in freight transportation. One of the things that fascinates me though right now is that there are many, many people trying to make the transportation industries more efficient and they're having difficulty because they don't understand the industries. They come into transportation from a Silicon Valley perspective and they say, oh, this is inefficient. I see this inefficiency here. Why don't you fix this? And they come up with a, a brilliant idea, but then they don't realize that there's a reason for that inefficiency because it's a complicated industry. You have a lot of different kinds of shippers. You have a lot of different kinds of carriers. And it's not so simple as telling everybody, hey, I'm smart. I've got a better idea to make your logistics more efficient. And that's why this improvement is going step by step by step. And the people who promise to simply transform the logistics world with a great idea, uh, they're not quite getting there. My last question, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, what do you think is going to be the Biden trade policy? I know that's a gro grossly simplistic question for something that would have a lot of moving parts. But I would notice that uh, already uh, President Biden has decided to keep some Trump tariffs on. I wonder if uh, the, the Trump administration kind of reset the bar and looking tough actually is going to have some role, even if it's a tariff that economically it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, Biden, I think, has some opportunities to actually find new trade agreements that there might even be um, some interest in. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of interest in a U.S.-EU agreement, which Trump was not interested in. But I think many people in the United States see the EU as a good counterweight to China and, and want a closer relationship. And then we had a Pacific trade agreement that was kind of designed to fence in China. Uh, Trump walked away from that 
But there's a lot of uh, concern about China in the United States now, and I think that there are voices saying we ought to uh, reconsider this because even though there may be some disadvantages for the United States, there may be some advantages in strengthening an alliance of countries that are concerned about China. So those are some things that uh, the Biden folks may consider, uh, even as they uh, talk tough about uh, unfair trade and, and promote uh, Buy America policies. Mark, I'd love to talk for a lot longer, but that's all the time we have today here at the Freightways Global Supply Chain Summit. We do hope you'll come back, hopefully next time in person, and you can sign my book. I would love to come back in person. John, thank you very much for having me on. So our guest today has been Mark Levinson. He's an author. He's an economist. He's an analyst of international trade. He's the author of the groundbreaking book, The Box about the history of the container cargo. He's been our guest here. I want to thank you for joining us. I've been your host, John Kingston. Please stick around for some more of Freightwaves Global Supply Chain Summit.